0: I'm very excited today to move actually into a new sermon series. Uh, Last week we uh, ended a uh, 12-lesson series on uh, keys to spiritual growth. And today I want to begin a 10-lesson series on blessed are the persecuted. And uh, again, if you have the sermon notes, you'll notice uh, this being uh, uh, an introduction to this series. It's a bit wordy. And so I did not ask Aubrey to put uh, most of this on the uh, PowerPoint. So uh, you first just follow along in your uh, notes. And uh, let me uh, share with you that introduction first and uh, the motivation uh, for the series. Uh, What we're going to do in this series is examine uh, ten different Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith uh, in God. Uh, today, we'll look at uh, Joseph, uh, and actually, it will probably take us uh, today and next Sunday uh, to look at Joseph. And then we'll look at David, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, uh, Esther, Nehemiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, and then finally, Jesus. Uh, we will not only discover how God uses persecution to purify his people and promote his kingdom. But hopefully we'll discover how we are to respond uh, when faced with persecution. Now the motivation for the series. Why uh, do I believe God led me in this direction? Well we are living in a post-Christian era here in the United States of America. Where hostility towards followers of Christ is intensifying and becoming worse. Now let me just pause right there. What I mean by a post-Christian era, and I've talked about this many other times from the pulpit, Uh, we're at a time in the United States of America where the Christian perspective, the Christian worldview is no longer the dominant view in this country. Uh, What has now become the dominant worldview is a secular humanistic perspective that removes God uh, from the picture and as God is removed there's no basis for moral absolutes there's no basis for the dignity and the value of human life and as a result we're seeing our society literally unravel uh, before uh, our eyes and, and this secular worldview has not just invaded the secular culture but also the church culture uh, I've shared with you many times from this pulpit uh, statistical studies that clearly demonstrate that even most of the people that profess to know Jesus in this country do not live by a Christian worldview. The, the, the Bible is not the basis for their decision uh, making. Uh, Kathy and I uh, went up to uh, Atlanta to celebrate our anniversary this past week just for a couple of days. And I was at the pool there in the hotel and uh, I began to witness to a, to a young man and he shared with me that he uh, knew the Lord Jesus as, as his Savior. And we began to uh, he was a, discuss his life. He was uh, newly married and they were involved in what sounded like a very good church. And it was interesting, he made the comment, you know, he said, it's very difficult to find a good church today. You see, It seems like, and this was his language, he said, it seems like most of the churches, it's just a feel-good experience. He said, I, I, I can share with you that most of my friends would say they profess Christ. Most of my friends go to church, but there's been absolutely no change in their lifestyle. They still live very ungodly lives, and they have this concept that they can just show up at church, ask God's forgiveness, and everything's okay, and they continue to just live any way they want, believing they have their ticket to heaven, and, and that sadly uh, has captured the church." Uh, today. The Apostle Paul, continuing in the sermon notes, the Apostle Paul warned that in the last days, what? Difficult times will come. And as a result, in that same chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not if, but will, suffer persecution. So why is the persecution of followers for Christ inevitable? Well, let me share with you very, very briefly four reasons. The first reason persecution is inevitable for any true follower of Jesus Christ is the Christian belief that there are moral absolutes rooted in God's character and revealed in God's Word for which all men will be held accountable to God. This is in direct opposition to a secular society which says the only absolute allowed is the absolute assistance, insistence that there are no absolutes. That is a perfect description of the age in which we live. The only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there are no absolutes. Therefore, there can be no tolerance for Christians who possess the absolutes of God's Word by which all men will be judged. The second reason persecution is inevitable is the exclusivity of Christ. And by the exclusivity of Christ, I mean that Jesus is the only way to heaven which is a death blow to the autonomy of man. Since Christianity requires man to turn from going his own way and submit to Jesus as Lord. Therefore, it is easier to attack Christians as being narrow bigots than relinquish control and surrender to God. The third reason persecution is inevitable is the godly lifestyle and witness of believers, which serves as light, exposing sin and pointing people to Jesus. Since men, as it says in John 3, love darkness more than the light, they find it easier to try to extinguish the light rather than be exposed by the light. And then the fourth reason why persecution is inevitable is the believer's conviction the true believer, the true follower of Christ, that no person, no authority or government has the right to command what is contrary to God's laws. And if they do, it is the duty of the Christian to disobey. As the d- d- disciples said in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Faith in God calls the believer to stand alone when necessary in obedience to God regardless of the consequences and of course this often puts Christians on a collision course uh, with the culture with the world in which we live I just recently shared with you that in three states now California Illinois and Hawaii they enacted laws that are that have been signed by the governors they're in place now that mandate a pregnancy center to provide the women that come into them not only information about abortion but referral for abortions mandated by the law that's a great example where these pregnancy centers and those that staff them those they're in a position where there's only one decision and that is what not to comply you can't comply with a law like that that's contrary to God's laws and so you you do not comply you practice civil disobedience regardless of the consequences, in order to remain true and faithful to Christ. And we're beginning to see those types of things happen in this country, and we should anticipate that only to intensify. So that last uh, uh, sentence right there, the time has come for the church in America to prepare for persecution in order to remain faithful to Christ and advance His gospel and, and to count it an honor to suffer for Him regardless of the cost. So what I'm hoping will happen in this series is that we'll get a good biblical theology on persecution and that God will use this truth to gird us up where we would be willing uh, to remain faithful to Christ no matter what comes our way. And, uh, and let me really encourage our parents. You better now be preparing your children for persecution because it's even almost impossible to anticipate what our kids are going to experience within the next few years what our what my grandchildren are going to experience and we are doing them a great disservice if we don't begin to prepare them now for the coming storm because it is coming and they need to be instructed on what is the biblical response to persecution and they need to see that lived out in our lives trusting that God will give us that grace now lesson one is on Joseph and uh, what I plan to do in this series is take a very very simplistic approach uh, each week we will take the different Bible characters I mentioned and I'll just first just tell the story just rehearse the story for you and then after telling the story we will then extract from that life hopefully several lessons that we can apply to our lives now let me mention one other thing before we get started I'm focusing on persecution when we get attacked for our faith in Jesus but also understand everything that will be shared also applies to any adversity that you face any suffering and when you think about it the best way to prepare for persecution Is to what? Know God's grace in your present trials and adversities. So that you become strong in your faith. Strong in Christ-like character. And so again, everything that is shared not only relates to persecution, but any adversity that you're encountering right now. So lesson one, Joseph. And uh, let me provide you an overview of Joseph's life. You'll notice in your notes, I divided uh, Joseph's life into three segments But before we look at that, I want us to look very briefly at the really big picture. God's plan for Joseph. God's plan for Joseph was to use Joseph as as his instrument to get God's people out of the promised land and move them to Egypt. And this actually was something that God told Abraham he was going to do. Abraham was the great-grandfather of Joseph. And God told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to know you're the chosen family. My plan is to bless you, to bless the families of the earth. And he said to Abraham, there's coming a time, very soon, I'm going to actually uh, take your chosen family... And I'm going to take you out of the promised land, out of Canaan, and I'm going to put you into Egypt uh, for 400 years to be dominated by this foreign power. Now, why would God do that? Well, but God basically gives two reasons. First, he says the sin of the Canaanites, in other words, the inhabitants of the land, did not yet warrant their destruction. In other words, their sin. Needed to continue to ripen, needed to continue to mature until God's justice required their removal. And the second reason is that God's plan for the chosen family was for them to become a chosen nation. But He knew if they remained in Canaan and they began to grow, they would be viewed as a threat by the Canaanites and they would be destroyed while still small in number. So God's plan was to plant them in Egypt, to grow them into a nation. And folks, if you're familiar with the story, the plan worked extremely well. Uh, They entered Egypt a family that numbered 70 people. 70 people. They left Egypt at the time of the Exodus, a nation of millions That actually surpassed the population of Egypt itself. And Joseph. Joseph was God's instrument. To move the chosen people. From Canaan to Egypt. For their good. And as we will see. God uses the mistreatment that Joseph experienced. God used the persecution he experienced. To accomplish all of that. God Took something very, very bad and he turned something very, very good out of it. Therefore, in this first lesson, and I don't want you to miss this, we discover a very important foundational truth that God uses persecution for the ultimate good of his people and to advance his kingdom. This is without exception. In the entire Bible and in all of church history. And that's why when you examine the history of the church. Persecution has always, always resulted in the growth of the church. Both spiritually, in holiness and purity and both numerically. As the authenticity of Christianity is put on display in very, very difficult, adverse situations. But do not miss this. When Joseph was suffering persecution, when he was being mistreated, he didn't see any plan. He didn't see what we were just talking about. He didn't see any rhyme or reason in what he was experiencing. He couldn't see any good outcome. He had to trust God in the dark. Believing God was at work, although he couldn't see it, to fulfill his plan... Just like you and I must do when we're suffering adversity or persecution. I love a wonderful verse in Isaiah chapter 50. It's uh, verse 10. It says, if you you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. Isn't that a beautiful truth? If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God on your God, and that's the marvelous thing that we see in Joseph's life. So now let's just overview his life. Look at birth to 17, which the, this goes through uh, Genesis 30 through the 37th chapter of uh, Genesis, or the early verses of chapter 37. Uh, Joseph's father, of course, was, who knows, Jacob. And his mother was Rachel. Yeah, that's good, you can read. Uh, who was the favorite who was the favorite of Jacob's two wives the other being Rachel's older sister Leah uh, there was an intense rivalry between the sisters for Jacob's affections which created a childbearing competition uh, Leah birthed six sons and a daughter while Rachel who struggled with infertility birthed two sons one being Joseph there were also two concubines who each birthed two sons to Jacob. This all added up to one father, two wives, two concubines, four mothers, and 13 children, with Joseph being the next to the youngest and Jacob's favorite child. And although the family enjoyed tremendous material prosperity and the twelve sons became the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel from which God built this nation the home sadly did not exemplify godly character but was a picture of dysfunction filled with strife envy anger lust and deceit now let me just give you a few examples of the level of dysfunction in this family. And not to be missed in all of this is the absolutely incredible passivity of Jacob never to address any of these problems. He never tried even to remedy any of these problems. It's just astounding his passivity in his home. We start for and there could be other examples given, but I'll just give you several. We start with how the two concubines came into the picture who eats birthed two children to Jacob. When Rachel initially was unable to conceive, she became so jealous of her sister Leah, who had already birthed four children to Jacob, that Rachel demanded of Jacob that he have relationships with her maid, so that through her maid, she could have children. Well, Not to be outdone, when Leah sees this happening, she gives Jacob her maid as well. And she has two children uh, to Jacob. And to make matters even worse, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, commits incest with one of the concubines. And in all of this, Jacob does absolutely nothing. Another example, when Dinah, Jacob's only daughter, is raped by the prince of Shechem, Jacob again takes no action, but his sons do. They devise a very evil and devil-inspired scheme for revenge. Uh, They promise, if you're familiar with the story, they promise Dinah's hand in marriage to her assailant and to allow their daughters to intermarry with the men in the city if, All these Gentile men will be circumcised. And so while the men are in pain and healing for their circumcision, Jacob's sons in cold blood kill every single male in the city with the sword. And then they loot the city of all of its wealth. Jacob's only response has nothing to do with the welfare of his daughter or the ruthlessness of his sons. You know what his response is? He becomes angry that the actions of his sons will taint his public image in the eyes of the local inhabitants. Now, very pertinent to Joseph uh, is his brother's intense hatred and jealousy toward him, which Jacob, again, just lets fester and does absolutely nothing to address It's important to understand there's a very significant age gap between Joseph and his older brothers. Joseph, as I mentioned, was the first of two children birthed by Rachel, who was the true love of Jacob. As mentioned earlier, she struggled with infertility for for many years uh, and actually died uh, in childbirth as she birthed her second son, Benjamin who, of course, was the youngest of all of Jacob's children. Joseph is very, very young uh, when uh, Rachel dies. And in Jacob's grief, he turns all of his attention, apparently, all of his affections towards Joseph. He is daddy's favorite. He's daddy's little pet, and everyone knows it. Jacob gives Joseph, you remember what? The coat of many colors. Which you need to understand is much more than just a a gift from a loving father. It is a garment worn by the nobility of that day. It was a symbol of authority and favored position within the family. The message to his brothers was that Joseph, the younger, is not going to have to work like the rest of us. But he's going to be given everything on a silver Platter. Things even worsen after Joseph tattles on his brothers by giving Jacob a bad report about them. And then, of course, there are Joseph's dreams. Uh, Joseph shares with his brothers and even his father about his dreams, which indicate that one day they will all bow down to Joseph and he, the younger, will actually rule over them. Now add all this up, and this is what you have. Just listen to a few passages. In uh, Genesis 37, we read this. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. We're told later in that same chapter, they hated him even more for his dreams and words. And even later in the chapter, and his brothers were jealous of him. And this brings us to the second significant segment of Joseph's life, which you see in your notes, from 17 to 30. Thirteen dark and painful years of intense suffering. All brought about by the evil act of his brothers selling him into slavery. He is a fa- he's falsely accused during this time of attempting to rape his master's wife thrown into an Egyptian prison. When Joseph is instrumental in securing his cellmate's release from prison with the anticipation his kind act will be reciprocated, he is abandoned and forgotten by his friend to languish even longer in prison. Actually another two years. Now let me fill in a few of the details. Joseph is sent by Jacob at the age of 17. To check on his brothers who were pasturing their flocks in Dothan. Uh, they lived in Bethel. And this would have been a trip of about 65 miles. When he arrives and his brothers see him coming at a distance... They very quickly devise a plan to kill him and to throw his body into a pit and then go home and tell Jacob that he was devoured by a wild beast. Reuben, to his credit, the oldest, intervenes and he prevents immediate death. But they strip Joseph of his coat of many colors and they throw him into a pit. Bible says they have no conscience at all. The brothers are sitting down enjoying a meal together and they suddenly see uh, this Ishmaelite caravan at a distance and then they have this brilliant idea. Hey, man, what a wonderful way to get rid of Joseph and at the same time make some money in the deal. So they sell Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Uh, arriving in, uh, in Egypt, Joseph is bought by Potiphar, an Egyptian uh, officer. So here you have, think about this now, a 17-year-old teenager, torn away from his family, the only land, the only religion that he's ever known. He's put into a culture where he could not initially speak the language, They do not share his values. Of course, they do not worship his God. But though a slave, we discover that he quickly stands out for his integrity and wisdom. And Potiphar gives him charge as a steward over his entire household. But just as things are looking up for Joseph, enters Potiphar's wife, who is very attractive to Joseph... And day after day, the Bible says, literally day after day, she tries to seduce Joseph. To have sexual relations with him. She finally corners him alone in the house. And she grabs him by his cloak. And she appeals to him, go to bed with me. And of course, you know exactly what Joseph did. He took off a running. Smartest thing you can ever do. Uh, Sexual temptation is one of those areas that God never says to resist. He says to what? You resist it by fleeing, uh, getting out of there. And, of course, his cloak is left in her hand. Enraged by the rejection, she begins to scream bloody murder, accusing Joseph of attempting to rape her. And, of course, where does that end up putting Joseph? In a terrible Egyptian prison. And the scripture tells us in Psalm 105, they bruised his feet with fetters and they placed his neck in an iron collar. And he spent years and years and years in that prison. But in prison, as in Potiphar's house, Joseph is recognized very quickly by the jailkeeper for his integrity and his wisdom and the jailkeeper puts all the prisoners under the charge of Joseph. After a period of time, Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer, they are both put in prison in suspicion of a plot against Pharaoh. After a long confinement, the Bible says, both of these men have dreams which Jacob interprets. And basically what Jacob says is in three days, so sorry, baker, but, but Pharaoh is going to hang you. He's going to execute you. He's going to chop your head off. But he tells the cupbearer, in three days, you're going to be restored to your position. Joseph makes a strong appeal to the cupbearer to remember him when released, to put in a good word for him to Pharaoh, to get him out of the prison. And Joseph is actually excited about the prospects of his release, knowing the cupbearer will have a close relationship with Pharaoh. He'll literally be in Pharaoh's presence each and every day. But on his release, the Bible tells us, the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Just forgets him. And Joseph remains in prison, as I mentioned a moment ago, another long two years. So all of this adds up. Over 13 years... suffering for Joseph. Undeserved mistreatment, abuse, and betrayal by his own family, by his own flesh and blood. Loss of freedom and confinement to harsh and painful circumstances of a slave. Untrue accusations of the most horrific nature that he is a sexual offender that puts him in prison with fetters and a collar around his neck and then unfair abandonment from a friend that he helped. Now we come, praise him, to the good years. And that is 30 to death. Joseph died, by the way, at the age of 110. Uh, Joseph, as you know, is suddenly elevated from prisoner to prime minister of all of Egypt. Has greater authority than anyone else in Egypt other than Pharaoh himself. And this happens as a result of interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Remember, Pharaoh had a couple of dreams. We won't get into all that. One was about cows. One was about corn. And uh, he was troubled by his dream. None of his servants could provide the interpretation. And then, as as Pharaoh was struggling with, his cupbearer, he says, Oh, yeah, I remember old Joseph, this Hebrew slave in prison. He said, Hey, Pharaoh, there's this, this, this young guy in prison, this Hebrew slave, and he interpreted my dream and, and, and the baker, and it happened just as he said, I, I think he might can help. And Pharaoh says, get that kid out of prison, and get him to me quick. Pharaoh tells him his dream and Joseph said, oh yeah, Pharaoh, I'll tell you exactly what the interpretation is. Egypt's going to know seven years of plenty, but then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And then... Jacob, I mean, Joseph goes a step further, and he says, So Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. You need to get ready for the years of famine. You need to find you a guy that's going to organize things and administrate things where you take a certain percentage of the grain that's gained in these seven, and you store it away so that when the famine hits, it won't impact Egypt. And actually, you'll be having other nations coming to you to buy grain that is just going to increase uh, the wealth of... Of your economy and Pharaoh says I don't need to look for anybody you're the guy you're the guy if you can interpret the dream you ought to be able to administrate that plan and in a moment he's elevated to prime minister of all of, the, of Egypt and the rest of his years are lived in prosperity under God's blessing and although he has the authority and he's given the perfect opportunity "...to exact revenge on his brothers for their cruelty and injustice, which again resulted in 13 long years of suffering, slavery, and imprisonment, he forgives them, and he returns their evil with great kindness in providing all their needs." And you know the story. The famine does hit, and when the famine hits, his family back in Bethel, they're struggling to make ends meet, to survive, And Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And you remember when they show up, they don't recognize Joseph. I mean, Joseph, there's been many years. He's clean shaven with the Egyptian dress. And the scripture even tells us that he never spoke Hebrew to them. He always used an interpreter as if, He didn't understand the Hebrew language and he only spoke Egyptian. And of course, they didn't recognize him, but he immediately recognized them. And then, you know, we won't go into all the intrigue and the plot, but eventually he uh, reveals himself to his brothers. He's reunited with them. His father brings the family uh, to Egypt uh, to care for them. And that's one of the great ironies of the story. God uses the mistreatment of his brothers towards Joseph to save them. That was the purpose in all of this, to get this family from Canaan to Egypt to protect them and, as we mentioned, to grow them as a a nation. And so, uh, instead of exacting revenge on them, he shows loving kindness and forgiveness. Now, lessons to be learned from Joseph, and we're just going to look at the first one uh, today, and then we'll save the second two for next Sunday. The first lesson is this, choose God's righteousness when there appears to be no expectation of reward. That's the first lesson we learn from Joseph. When you're in a time of adversity, when you're in a time of persecution, when, you, when everything seems dark, nothing makes any sense, there's no rhyme or reason, just keep choosing God's righteousness, even though there may not appear to be any expectation of reward. Now, when I say, it's very important, When I say no expectation of reward, I mean no expectation of reward in this life. There's always the expectation of reward in the next. Matter of fact, and don't miss this, one of the greatest deficiencies in the American church is that temporal gratification is more important to us than eternal reward. And I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm talking about things like material prosperity, a nice home, uh, health, family, freedom, security, comfort... Happiness, none of those things are bad things. They're good things, but they're still temporal things. And what's happened in America, in the church, is those temporal things have become more important than eternal reward. And we tend to see God as a means to get those temporal things that we want. But Joseph was stripped of all of those things to suffer abuse, slavery, slander, imprisonment, and betrayal. And let me ask you, let's all be honest right now. How would you respond under similar circumstances? How would you respond? I mean, how angry, how bitter would you be? Would you be wallowing in self-pity, despair, and anxiety? Would you be accusing God of child abuse? How can you treat me this way as as your child? Yet, Joseph did not fall victim to any of those reactions. But he continued to trust and obey God. Although he was walking in darkness, as it says in Isaiah 50. Although he was without a ray of light. He did the only thing that he knew to do. Continue to trust God. Continue to rely on the Lord. Continue to choose the right actions, the right attitudes. And remain faithful to God. In Genesis 39, it makes no difference absolutely no difference whether Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house or whether he's being tempted by Potiphar's wife or languishing for years in prison. He always chooses righteousness. He didn't understand what was going on. He was struggling trying to figure it out. But he understood there's only one thing I can do. Choose the right thing to do. And listen to me folks and bottom line how can anything Really go wrong if God is leading and you are following. And that was Joseph's attitude. All I know to do is follow what I understand God's will to be, what God's word is, His commands, to walk in integrity, to walk in wisdom, to honor Him. Even if the path is through suffering or persecution, it is only because. God knows that is the way to true blessing. That is the way to that which is good, true good, as we learn from Joseph's life. So yes, Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's home. But first and foremost, he was what? God's slave. God's servant. To serve God's agenda. And yes, Joseph's bed may have been on a prison cell floor... For refusing to go to bed with Potiphar's wife, but he was a free man because his conscience was free. When tempted by Potiphar's wife, Joseph said, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? And yes, Joseph may be confined in prison, but he's forever chained to God by his love. After Joseph was put in prison, we read in Genesis 39, 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Yes, things were bad for Joseph. Things went from bad to worse for Joseph. But he followed a God who causes all things to work for our good. Amen? And he trusted God. Now now listen carefully, beloved. Here it is right here as we close. Joseph teaches us, Joseph teaches us that no person, no circumstance can injure us spiritually unless we allow it to cause a wrong reaction in our spirit. Let me repeat that. That's one of the primary lessons we see in Joseph's life when you encounter persecution and adversity, that no person, no circumstance can injure me spiritually unless I allow it to cause a wrong reaction in my spirit. Viktor Frankl, survivor of a German concentration camp in World War II, wrote this. Not a Christian man, but still the truth is here. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing. The last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. See, we cannot control whether today or tomorrow we will be treated fairly. But the one thing that we can control is how we react to it. And our reaction will determine our eternal reward. Even if there's no temporal reward in this life. We read in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. Now... Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. You and you alone are responsible for your attitude. Therefore, no one ever needs to be the victim of circumstances. But through God's grace can be the victor in any and every circumstance. Although Joseph could make no sense of his life, God had not forsaken him. God was working out a plan impossible for Joseph's finite mind to understand. So no matter what you are going through right now, if you are God's child, God is with you. And God is extending kindness to you if you will only receive it. If we could see beyond today as God can see, if all the clouds could roll away and shadows flee, for present griefs we would not fret, for each sorrow we would soon forget, for many joys are waiting yet for you and me. If we could know beyond today as God doth know, why dearest treasures pass away and tears must flow. And why the darkness leads to light. Why dreary paths would soon grow bright. Someday life's wrongs will be made right. Faith tells us so. If we could see. If we could know we often say. But God in love a veil doth throw across our way. We cannot see what lies before and so we cling to Him the more. He leads us till this life is o'er. Trust and obey. If you're walking in darkness without a ray of light this morning, trust in the Lord and rely on Him. Choose God's righteousness even when there appears to be no expectation for reward. And what God did for Joseph He will do for you. Bow with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the uh, truth that we learn in Joseph's life. That ultimately no person, no circumstance can injure us spiritually unless we cause it, let it cause a wrong reaction in our spirits, unless we allow bitterness and anger and disappointment to fester. So, Lord, give us grace. Like Joseph, when the path is dark and we're without a ray of light, simply to continue to choose righteousness, to continue to choose that which is right, to walk in integrity, to walk in your wisdom, to walk in your understanding, uh, to rely on you, to put our trust in you, to simply trust and obey, knowing that nothing can ultimately really go wrong when you're leading. And we're following. And you'll always bring us out to the end of the tunnel where there will be light, where there will be reward, even if it's just eternal reward. So we praise you. We thank you. uh, Give us the grace to trust you. For which in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we extend the invitation today, uh, uh, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, uh, you've heard about a God who loves his children so much that even the worst things in life He works and uses for our good and to accomplish His purposes. And I can't understand why anyone would not want to flee to this God uh, for refuge, uh, for forgiveness of their sins, uh, to give their lives and surrender to Him, knowing that a loving God like that, He knows best, not me, uh, that uh, my mind is too finite to understand the infinite ways of God. But well, praise God, I can put my hands in the life of the potter and trust, trust him. Uh, possibly you're here and God's leading you to unite with the Edgewood family. I would encourage you to come forward at this time to present yourself to the church family for that uh, purpose. And so I'll remain here to stand to receive anyone that has a decision of any nature. And you just be obedient to what God has spoken today. So please stand as the invitation is extended.